Stand by for a start. Racing. At $210,000 at Isella Done. Well done. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of The Shortlist, the official podcast of the Federation of Bloodstock Agents Australia. And as always, this podcast is brought to you by our fantastic sponsors, IRT and Stable Financial. Joining me today to discuss all things racing and breeding, our FBA member, Damon Gabbity from Belmont Bloodstock and our special guest, very special guest, prominent and very successful breeder and owner, Robert Crabtree from Dorrington Farm. Gentlemen, Hello and welcome. G'day, Sharky. Good afternoon, Shark and Robert. Damon, how are you? Excellent. L- live from the Belmont Bloodstock headquarters in <laughs> inner city Melbourne. It's quite a salubrious environment you've got here, Damon. Thanks, Shark. We, uh, we're happy here. All decorated. We heard some of the background, Rob, didn't we, a moment ago about some of the famous artworks on the walls? Yes, one of Damon's more interesting acquisitions. <laughs> yeah, I would say that's a good way to sum it we up. We like an eclectic look around the office, so uh, we're happy with it. Absolutely. I've never actually been in a Bloodstock Agents office. I think most of them uh, sort mi- of work out of their cars and things like that. You might not is... get out alive. No, no, we might not. We might not. <laughs> <laughs> There's plenty happening in the world of racing and breeding, but given we've got... Uh, the pleasure of Rob's company today, we thought we'd profile a personality, I guess, Damon, from the Australian racing and breeding world that a lot of people would know of and would know Rob's colours, the red and white checks and Catchy and Magnus and horses like this, but they would have heard of Dorrington Farm, but they probably don't know a lot about the man behind those horses. I agree, I thought it was a very interesting subject and uh, Robert's been a great breeder and owner over the years, so I thought we'd get to know a bit about him. So before we delve into your background, Rob. Tell us about uh, the working relationship with Damon. When when did you start doing business together? Gosh, I had to think, Shark, but it's probably most of this century. Uh, And the reality is, I guess we got together out of need. Um, It's funny, being an independent breeder and and owner, uh, not part of one of the big corporations, you sort of need somebody to bounce things off, sort sort of a mentor. But it's funny... I came into the business without a background in horses. and uh, But the time I figured out a decent question, I'd sort of discovered the answers. Okay. So I then needed to approach somebody, something from a different perspective, and that was Damon's skill and his uh, attributes for, for my decision-making process to challenge me and to uh, inform me of things that were going on. And we've done quite a bit of business together. Uh, as I have with some of the other agents in the Federation. And usually they've been pretty successful ventures. Damon, as an agent, you've got a new client who approaches you. You do a bit of your homework. You're a successful person. Where do you start? Well, uh, with somebody like Robert and Dorrington Farm, Robert's been a successful breeder anyway. So I can't reinvent the wheel and tell him what to do. What I like to bring to the table is what I call the devil's advocate role and question some of the decisions. I also like to bring some statistical research. I think that's very important where not enough people are using evidence, statistical-based evidence for their mating plans uh, and to see how stallions are really going or the broodmare sire is really going and what they might nick and work with. So that's what I like to bring to the table just to to complement already a successful breeder. So... That's where I think we work well together. I think it's a bit of a misconception from people that sort of flirt in and out of the 
industry at this or this side of the industry I guess at this time of year is that agents do all the work and the client just says yes sir no sir whatever else but it's an advisory role it's that sounding board role Rob but that sort of closer to the truth it is um but it's a different perspective coming from a different direction. Mm-hmm. I mean, you get caught in your own theories in this business of what works and doesn't work, and it's refreshing to have a, a professional on your side who's still going to say not just what you want to hear, yeah. but uh, what you should hear. And so, there's different types of breeders too. Some people, Robert's very hands-on and involved, and that's fantastic, and I think that's a major reason for his success because he's so hands-on. Some people who are a bit more removed, maybe not being as successful. One of the things, Sharky, that that Damon um, asked me once was, why are you in breeding? What's what's your reason? And I said, well, my raison d'etre, if you will, is to build families. I don't... I don't produce horses for the market. I produce horses that can win and grow a mare's family. Um, and that's what I specialise in. One comes to mind is a uh, filly called Lady Knockout. Uh, she was bought with another one of, of Damon's uh, compatriots, and that's uh, Mark Pilkington, bought out of Perth. Uh, she had won three minor stakes races, and, and we bought her over here and we won the uh, matron stakes with her and she's gone on to produce a really active and successful family for me those sorts of things um is what what i get my uh my joy out of is to build a successful female family i think that shines through as well to anybody particularly at the premier sale who's had a look at at your horses and in recent times with with the blue gum draft you're often hanging around and one of yours comes out and you're straight over the person and you're sort of having a comment or, or pushing up for them but you've got great pride in the end product don't you that goes to sale and then goes to the racetrack some you keep some you sell but the reality is if you can sell one that's going to go to a good home what you're doing is two things you, you're gaining some money to keep the overheads down but you're also growing the family uh, for the next generation and that's that's I think the the thing that keeps me in the business, not just is the rationale for being there now, but keeps me in the future. So, have you always had an interest in racing, like going back to childhood or family connections? Was there a link, an obvious link there for you with the sport? No, th- th- there were no links for me at all. Except when I was a little kid, I used to have my hair cut at a barber in Ashburton, in High Street, Ashburton. And there was a photo on the wall of that incredible triple dead heat. Right. And that fascinated me for years and years. Uh, and I can still remember it. So it's obviously a mental link for me that somehow it just created a, it conjured up uh, a respect for the past and an excitement factor. And that's what racing is. It's exciting. So what were you doing in your life business-wise where you needed an outlet, a new outlet for excitement? It must have been something pretty mundane. <laughs> no, no. Look, I was into car dealerships of the latter years and they were successful ventures for me. I had a Ford franchise and a Mazda franchise respectively. They were great businesses and they, they had some parallels in there that you bring some of those uh, rationales and some disciplines into the horse business and it's the same as any other business essentially you have to make a profit at the end of the day or you'll lose interest or it's not sustainable Um, and a lot of that is put down to the amount of work you put in Mm. and part of that work to make it more fruitful 
and and more uh, successful is the sort of advice you get from people like Pilko and, and Damon and, and other people who can come into your life and make a contribution. So you're in car dealerships, you've got other business interests, you haven't been involved in racing before. What was the catalyst for the initial involvement? <laughs> there were two. Um, one was uh, my children decided to, they wanted a hack. Okay. Uh, so I went, I bought a little farm down in uh, Balnarring and the kids and I had hacks and we enjoyed the animal. We grew, grew to love the animal. Um, that, that component of it is inescapable. If you don't love horses as animals and great respect for them and great affinity for them, then really you're not going to last as a mm. breeder. Mm. Um, and then I was, um, through business, I was with, involved with a man called Monty Milson, the late Monty Milson, who was uh, a terrific breeder himself. Um, and he said to me one day, would I like to be in a horse? I said, racehorse. And I said, oh, not really, Monty. It's, it's not really my go. Anyway, uh, one thing led to another, and I did buy a one-sixth share in a horse. It was subsequently named Join in the Chorus, which is a line from the North Melbourne Footy Club it is. Um, theme song <laughs> because Monty was a director of, of the North Melbourne Footy Club. Uh, what a and champion Monty must have been. He was a great guy and his brother um, was uh, in the Carlton Footy Club. So, yeah, they were steeped in sport, racing and footy. And anyway, this horse um, was up for its first run at the Melbourne Spring Carnival and uh, it ran second in a stakes race. And I thought, oh, well, a second, it's not first. Now I aspire to get a second yeah. in a stakes race at the Melbourne <laughs> Cup Carnival. Interestingly enough, um, the things that do entice you, as this conversation started with, Monty actually got the Quinella in that race, uh, or the horse called Segesta, um, and, uh, and our horse called uh, Join in the Chorus, first and second. Monty's wife um, had the Quinella and it paid over $100 and I thought there's something in this business and, <laughs> and there we are. <laughs> uh, well, Monty, we've got Monty to blame but having a good, uh, having a good horse first up is uh, often yeah. the, that's where the addiction starts, isn't it? Sure, I mean, you, you're fishing and you, get, you land a good one mm. first up, you're going to go fishing a bit more, aren't absolutely. you? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it's, it's one of the two things, isn't it? You get a slow horse and you think, no, no, I'm not stopping on a slow one, and you keep chasing, or, or you keep chasing that taste of success. You hear that story a lot. Mm-hmm. Aussie Care said to me a couple of times that you know he got into racing, you know, as something to try, I guess, as a as a hobby to try, but he couldn't believe how much business he could get done by saying he's involved in racing. From a business point of view, do you find have you found that the same way that there's people that you can do? work with outside of the sport that you meet in the sport and it becomes beneficial? Uh, it wasn't, wasn't my experience. I, I respect that, that perspective because obviously networking and things like that yeah. do, does really work, particularly old school networks and all that sort of thing too. But no, I, I was more of an independent bloke who made all his own mistakes and, and just graduated into the commercial side of things more out of stubbornness than anything else. So I I was keeping my own counsel and that's why particularly the involvement of people like Damon has been very beneficial for me. So from joining the chorus, you obviously then bought another share in a horse and another horse and it kept growing? Yeah, that's basically what happened. Um, (laughs) One of my um, partners said to me that uh, in that horse, he said to me, this is a pretty tough business. And I said... 
is this a business? <laughs> and subsequently realised, of course, it is a business, a very legitimate one, but it takes a transition to go from the hobby to the business and then start to apply all the disciplines out of your business life into the uh, the realm of, of horse breeding and racing. So, and that's that's not easy to do, but it's something you've got to do, I think. So, Robert, what made you go from racing horses to breeding them? Yeah. Well, I bought a farm because of the love my children and I shared for horses. And one thing led to another. I had I had cattle on the on the property, no horses. And uh, anyway, I decided for some crazy reason to go and buy a broodmare. So I went up to to Tallarook and uh, spoke to Brendan McCarthy, the late Brendan McCarthy, who was a, a doyen of the industry. He was one of the people in charge of introducing Super Bovis and Bovis to the Victorian racing industry. He was a Caulfield committee man and a lovely guy. And his family's Still stepped in. in racing. And um, he, he said to me, uh, I said to him rather, uh, I'd like to buy a broodmare. So he said, all right, well, he sold me one or two and uh, that was fine. And I put them in my horse float or the float that I'd borrowed. was driving back to my farm and I thought, gosh, what do you feed them? <laughs> well, I, I didn't know anything. So I turned around, went back to his farm and said, Brendan... What do I feed these horses? And he said to me, look, I'll give you a couple of bags of feed. And uh, that's how it started. I mean, it's pretty basic stuff. Uh, And out of um, ignorance and bliss, um, I've graduated to to breeding a few to race and then breeding a few to sell. And now a fairly decent combination of both. Adam Timms here. Stable Financial has been helping thoroughbred businesses since before GST started. And we enjoy some incredible, long-standing client relationships. We're very happy to support FBAA and its reputable network of advisors. As the Bloodstock agents facilitate trading opportunities, the stable makes sure that horse owners, breeders, trainers and syndicators are getting Group 1 business and tax advice. Please visit our website and get in touch with our awesome team at the stable. See how we can add value to your horse business and let you focus on finding winners rather than worrying about it. When it comes to the transport of your valuable thoroughbreds, look no further than IRT the world leader in horse transport. IRT has serviced the international market for almost 50 years with offices in Australia, New Zealand, Germany, the UK and the USA. Their experienced staff are with you and your horse at every step of the journey. IRT are proud to support the FBAA in enhancing and promoting the Australian thoroughbred market. IRT, your horse, our passion. Have you always been somebody that learns by doing? I'm stubborn. Um, <laughs> right, okay. Yeah, and it's a gr- ignorance is a great basis to start because you don't have preconceptions, you don't have too many things that will get in your way and you have to learn the answers. Mm. Uh, and racing's what I've learned is to respect racing and breeding. Some of the old masters, you know, the Neville Beggs and the Tommy Smiths and the Bart Cummings, they were great teachers. Not that they set out to teach you or mentor you, but... Their, their disciplines were fantastic. Their, you hung around them a little bit. You, you, if you, you were a fool if you didn't learn something. So it's such a great point you make. And I think anybody who's involved in racing, who's hung around enough knowledgeable mm-hmm. people, would have just immediately said to themselves, yes, and remembered a moment where they've absorbed something meaningful from somebody who had a lot of experience mm-hmm. and a lot of success, Damon. It's... It's it's such an innate oh not innate but it's such a a fabric a part of the fabric of racing that if you're willing to learn and listen, there's so much information being shared. 
Absolutely. You've got to keep an open mind. And one thing you always keep learning. You've never learnt enough in this business. And the minute you think you have, you're probably going to start making some bad decisions. So keep an open mind and learn and listen to as many people as you can would be my advice. Magnus would probably be the the most well-known horse that you've had, Rob. And look, he's successful group one sprinter from an incredible family, took you overseas and all the highs and lows. How did Magnus come about? Where did he come from? <laughs> uh, I bought a horse. What a great question for me because it makes me search my mind for how things happened. I bought a mare called Song of Norway from uh, a dispersal from... Um, the great David Haynes. The great <laughs> David Haynes dispersal. Uh, 1994. And Kathy Haynes carrying on that great tradition today with a lovely person she is. Um, and I bought a mare called Song of Norway in foal to, to Snippets. Snippets. And that became, uh, as a yearling, uh, Magnus. No, uh, Scandinavia. Oh, Scandinavia. I beg your pardon. Gosh, thank Sorry you. Sorry to correct Yeah, no, no, please. Um, a Scandinavia. And um, anyway, we sold her uh, as a yearling. Um, and I retained a quarter and uh, Lee Fleming, he bought the other three quarters of her. Anyway, we subsequently not so much fell apart, but our relationship had nowhere to go. So uh, we did a deal to separate ourselves from our lovely filly and mare. And uh, part of my deal was to keep the two first yearlings she had or the babies that she had, and one of them was Magnus. Um, and uh, so then he got the mare. He, he then went ahead and, and produced horses that um, eventually produced the great black caviar. And then time goes by and I bought her back again. So in the meantime, uh, I, I had Magnus and uh, raced him uh, to a very interesting journey. He took me to Royal Ascot, as, as you mentioned. Um, th- that was fantastic fun. Peter Moody was in his... Um, his beginnings and and he was a a great learner and teacher and to be around Pete with the horse on the international scene was uh, invigorating if nothing else. Royal Ascot would never have seen anything like Peter. (laughs) He was a beauty, he was a beauty. Um, But that song of Norway led to Scandinavia, Magnus, Black Caviar, All Too Hard, Hanseatic, mm. it's one of the best pedigrees in the stud book today. Incredible isn't it? When you look back at what came from from that mare or from that family, yeah, it's yeah. just amazing. So when you've you've sort of got into racing, you got into breeding, you're playing around a bit, you're getting more involved. At what point do you realise Magnus is a really good horse? Uh, he was in an incredibly strong era of other really really good racehorses, and he was holding his own in the best of races. Like he ran, I think. Uh, a second, a third, a fourth in new markets, for example, mm. with horses like Takeover Target, Gold Edition, Miss Andretti, um, and a number of others that were just the elite horses. Like Weekend Hustler mm. was one of them. Mm. They were the elite horses of the world. Like Weekend Hustler was a world champion, um, and we were we were right in the mix with those horses. We were the only entire amongst six or seven of them. Um, for example, on our way to Royal Ascot, we went to Singapore for the international um, and ran second, beaten ahead by takeover targets. Mm. Um, then when we got to 
Royal Ascot, we were beaten by Miss Andretti into a place in the King's Stand, yeah, one yeah. of the great sprints of Royal Ascot. Uh, it, it was an incredible journey, but it didn't it didn't do much more than than just entice me into the rest of it. I wasn't blown away by the experience. I loved the experience, but I wasn't. It didn't become all too consuming. It was just a taste of the things to come. Uh, and when Magnus eventually went to stud, um, we were very unfortunate. We were caught overseas when the EI problem existed yeah. in Australia. So we are caught overseas for nearly two years. So we didn't get away to that wonderful start at stud that other horses like Ritten Tycoon, who's the same age, he had two crops before we even to got stud. to Australia. Um, but he's proved to be a very, very good stallion, and that's been satisfying. But the strength really is in his female pedigree, and he's proving that now as a wonderful broodmare sire, quite emerging and quite dynamic as a broodmare sire. And so any broodmares that have got Magnus in their blood um, are going to be, I think, more than the average in the industry. And so that's very encouraging and rewarding of itself. Mm. Well, that's the ultimate, isn't it? To uh, yeah. ra- breed, race, own, and then stand a stallion. That's the ultimate for a breeder. Well, and from a somebody who's dabbling with a couple of broodmares and not sure of what to feed them to <laughs> in a relatively <laughs> short space of time has a stallion prospect. Like the, the business mindset kicks in at some point there, Rob, and you think, hmm, hang on a second. <laughs> you know, you start thinking of the, the maths and the numbers and everything else. Was Magnus, when he retired, you, you obviously retained... An interest in him. Was he sold and syndicated like people would know Colts to be sold and syndicated today? Um, no, in the early days, of course, syndication wasn't a big thing. I think syndication of itself has been one of the great saviours of the Australian industry. Mm. It, it simply uh, exposed our industry to so many people who otherwise would not be involved. Uh, and that's, that, that's both a joy and a commercial benefit. Um, but Magnus was really before, or the beginnings of Magnus was really before syndications. And what about when he was retired to stud? Was there a, a big sale deal? Was uh, were there a heap of different parties wanting to get involved, or were you able to retain a, a, a significant portion of him? Um, no, I, I've retained fifty percent, and and to this day I still own fifty percent. Wow. Um, and sure, it's been a good money spinner, but it's, it's not so much that. It's, it's seeing where he fits in the landscape of the industry. Mm. Um, he's never really had the big commercial hype. What he has been is great value for money. And you take Robbie Griffiths, for example, one of the respected trainers in Victoria. Uh, Robbie will tell you, and I might be out by one, but, but I think he's had 26 Magnus progeny. Um, to, to go through his stables, and I think 25 have won, which is the most extraordinary success story. Um, so if any of you are out there and you think that you wouldn't mind having a racehorse, maybe get a Magnus and put it with Robbie Griffiths. It's so a pretty good combination. A winner. I'm just thinking, he might not have been a Ferrari or a Lamborghini then, but he might have been a top-of-the-range Ford, something like that. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> fair comparison, Chuck, fair comparison. What about uh, some of the, the, the great fillies and mares that you've had? And I remember, and Damon reminded me how during the week when we were getting ready to, to have a conversation about that famous Blue Diamond Day with Catchy and, and Shidel both winning Group 1s on the same day. It was indecently wonderful. <laughs> um, That's a good name for a horse. <laughs> uh, I had had, up till then, one Group 1 in my, 
Group 1 winner in my life. In Magnus. Um, in Magnus. Um, I'd had 32, I can remember these figures so well, 32 podium finishes <laughs> in, on, in Group 1s. Um, and only one winner. So I had one out of 32. Now, I thought the 32, that is the placings in Group 1s, was a pretty big effort. The one, yeah, was I unlucky or lucky? I don't know. But that day that, that you, you bring up where we won the Blue Diamond with Catchy and 35 minutes or 40 minutes later, we won the famed Oakley Plate with Shidel. And I suddenly went from one out of 32 to Mr. 10%. <laughs> it was, was quite extraordinary. Um, uh, but the, the day itself, I didn't have time to thoroughly absorb the, the win of the Blue Diamond before the next race came along. And my darling wife, Sylvie, who um, had her arm in a sling from a skiing accident a couple of months before, um, was leading one of the horses in, and I thought, gosh, this is surreal. <laughs> and, and surreal it was. And both those um, wonderful fillies, both Group 1 winners, Catchy and Shidel, of course, now become part of the Dorrington uh, Farm Broodmare Band. I remember those two wins very clearly. I was at the races at Caulfield with some good mates and we were having a good day and somebody suggested we take this double, which, of course, when you're with a few mates and having a beer or whatever else, everybody soon joins on the bandwagon. I remember Catchy winning and thinking, well, there's half of it. Shidel looms up to hit the front. The celebrations began. I remember a little bit after that, but not quite the rest of the <laughs> evening. So it was, a very, it, was a, it was a memorable performance. And those two wins have almost burned into my mind because... Do you remember what it paid? Uh, I can't, but we, we mm. did very well out of it, that's sure for sure. Did. It paid for a wild night and uh, <laughs> a few other things. Uh, uh, there might have been a new couch or something thrown in there afterwards. Uh, you, you always got to put something into, uh, into furnishings in the home, I think, so you can point to it and remember. But it wasn't the brilliance or the, the margin, per se, of the wins. It was the celebration. I think there were a lot of people that were happy for you on that day as well. I think to go for a long time uh, between drinks and then to get second and third group one winners in 40 minutes is extraordinary. It mm. just goes to show when you're hot and on a roll, <laughs> you keep flying. You know, that's when you achieve things. It's unbelievable. They were good vibe wins, though, weren't oh, they? Oh, fantastic. Damon? People understand the effort and the time and the money that somebody's put in to the sport. When they get a result like that, there's, an, there's a, a general acknowledgement that that's well-deserved. Absolutely. And, you know, Robert bred Catchy and he'd bought Shidel as a tried horse. She's from WA, is that uh, right? WA, yes, uh, through Belmont Bloodstock. Thank you. Little, uh, plug, plug. little plug, plug there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that's a, that's a great part of what Robert does. He breeds them. He buys, sees a talented horse like Lady Knockout in the past and Shidel brings them over, you know. That's what the business is all about. So well-deserved and well-rewarded. Uh, look, that that's very gracious of you, but I don't think... Anybody deserves these wins. I, I don't think that's the way of things. I just think it's wonderful when something like that happens. Um, but for everybody involved in those big days of racing, is a, is a reason, is an attraction for them to become part of this industry forever. The great family fabric of racing. Uh, if you've experienced, I remember you, Damon. You, you, you won a, a Turek yeah. Group One, didn't you? Turek yeah, Hedigan, Souls and Edson. Souls and Edson. Yeah, two years in a row. Yeah, well, they're they're <laughs> wonderful times, aren't they? They're fantastic. Absolutely, they bring all your friends, family, oh. distant relatives, this old school friends. They all come out of the woodwork. It's great. Is this great the Souls and Edson couch we're sitting on? Souls and Edson paid for a few things, yeah. that's for sure. <laughs> I bet Look, he did. Racing is it, it is unique. 
uh, in our lives because for most people it starts off as a hobby and interest and attraction of some sort. might even be through just going and enjoying the spring carnival or, or you, you met somebody you're really still friends with uh, at a country race meeting or whatever it might be. But it used to be the fabric of Australia in the sense that every farmer had a horse, a racehorse, every town had a, uh, a cup or a major race of some sort and it's changed from that time but perhaps it's changed for the better because it's more sustainable now mm. and it's sustainable in the sense that as you mentioned before syndications have brought and attracted and shown been a show- showcase for racing at all levels um it's interesting though that not i don't think damon would know much better than me but not a lot of people who have raced have ended up being breeders no, you're probably right, mm. but that's a sort of different passion, isn't it? Some people just like going to the races and get the joy and thrill out of that, and then a lot of people, that can progress to like it did with you, to breeding, mm. and then a lot of people love that, and mm. then there's many people who don't like racing and love the breeding aspect only. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, industry caters for everybody. It does, it mm. does. Uh, and the growth of the industry uh, to what it is today is quite extraordinary. Absolutely. When it comes to the transport of your valuable thoroughbreds, look no further than IRT, the world leader in horse transport. IRT has serviced the international market for almost 50 years with offices in Australia, New Zealand, Germany, the UK and the USA. Their experienced staff are with you and your horse at every step of the journey. IRT are proud to support the FBAA in enhancing and promoting the Australian thoroughbred market. IRT, your horse, our passion. Adam Timms here. Stable Financial has been helping thoroughbred businesses since before GST started, and we enjoy some incredible long-standing client relationships. We're very happy to support FBAA and its reputable network of advisors. As the Bloodstock agents facilitate trading opportunities, the stable makes sure that horse owners, breeders, trainers and syndicators are getting Group 1 business and tax advice. Please visit our website and get in touch with our awesome team at the stable. See how we can add value to your horse business and let you focus on finding winners rather than worrying about it. Give us a health check from your point of view on how things are at the moment. Are we in a good place? We're at an interesting place, whether it's good Perhaps time will tell, but racing of itself is is more viable than it's ever been. Prize money through a lot of industry participants and government supports and, and other things has now grown to an extraordinary amount of money. We're, we're probably the most viable country in the world to in, in the sense that the prize money available is so strong for the opportunity of winning. Mm-hmm. Anybody can compete in our in our industry uh you have a chance of buying a 10 percent share of a horse or a whole horse and you can win the proverbial million dollars and you really can um i don't damon would know probably much better than i but the numbers of million dollar races now are to the point where it's i don't know multiple time multiple numbers Mm. a week it's extraordinary um and and our industry, through syndications particularly, um, has exposed a lot of people to those riches. So more and more people want to stay in racing and, and want to, to enter racing. But what I do know is, it's you, you asked about the health of the industry. What I do know is 
it is a very healthy place from the racing perspective. Mm. And from there, things like that dovetail into it, like breeding, become more viable. But again, the cost of breeding is now becoming very exy. Uh, service fees to potentially good stallions um, are a bit of a problem in my view. I think an experienced, proven stallion commands a legitimate commercial fee. I think we charge far too much to our breeders uh, and therefore the cost of racehorses in unproven stallions. Um, that's a, a component of the cost that inevitably leads to inflationary aspects. It, it mirrors real estate charging. Mm. Um, you know, you, you live in a little house that, that today costs you a million bucks that your your parents probably had in their day for ten or $20,000. Yeah. And if we become too expensive, we probably frighten too many people away in racing. Fair, fair, fair comment. And that, there's the, I guess, that, that side of the market where young Colt wins Group 1, retired from the track, syndicated within breeders and investors who want a piece of the action, and then to help recoup that investment, service fees are set, as you're saying, at, a, at what could be a slightly high amount based on, well, not only what... It's their potential, isn't it? They may have been a great racehorse or a precocious racehorse, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be a great stallion. Because I knew absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing when I first came into racing, all I learnt was that if a horse, a primary mare, had had black type, it had some credentials to be a broodmare. Um, And I've really not strayed too far from that. To me, the female of a of a of a mating is the most interesting and relevant component. Um, so, I, I don't I don't like to pay silly prices for service fees. Uh, I like to try and access a stallion that I think can complement the mare, mm-hmm. because you're not going to go to a stallion that you don't think has some credentials. So the difference is always the mare. And if you can bring a quality mare to the table for a, for a good mating, I think you can sell an interesting or produce and maybe sell an interesting product to the marketplace. Um, and again, that, that primary mare is the thing that I love and the thing that I try and produce and the thing that Damon tries to sell me um, because it is a, an interesting and identifiable component of the exercise. Absolutely, you'd agree. And that's black type mares usually mean they have the raceability, city winning black type form, running mares produce running racehorses. That's the that's the theory. And if you stick by that theory, you won't go far wrong. Have you got a view on, I guess, proportionally what a, a foal, how much they get from mum, how much influence is mum, how much is dad? Oh, look, you know, it's difficult. It's a bit of a sort of a matter of opinion, isn't it, yes. based on a lot of what agents speak about? Absolutely. And also, you every mare's different and every stallion's yeah. different. Some stallions are dominant in the type that they produce. Example, Dane Hill, pure breeding bay, very similar types, a dominant stallion. Um, at a rare, you know, they're the rarities. And some mares will throw to their what they look like or they'll throw to the stallion. So you might have a mare that throws exactly the same type every year, or a different mare will throw one that looks like her, the next one looks like the stallion, you know. So, And that's where you have to learn and adjust as you go along with the brewbear band about what sort of 
types of foals your mare is having. So it's very hard to say it's 50-50, 70-30, impossible. You, you can't carry stock forever. And from a, a, you're running an operation like a business, there's a point where you have to assess what's on the floor, on, the, you know, on your showroom and say, okay, we want these ones, maybe these ones can move on and, and find another, another home. How long do you give a mare? How forgiving are you of a mare before you say, okay, she hasn't worked? Robert should probably Is that a question for me? Gosh. Either so. one of you. Perhaps it's one that I'd be asking you, Damon. Well, we were, de- we were debating that today. <laughs> you know, you've, you've, um, there's good stakes winning mares. Uh, I would say about five to six foals. Okay. You know, really, like the first three to four are commercial, and if by foal four or five you haven't had a winner – buyers, trainers are coming to the sales going, well, this mare's on a fifth foal, no winners. Is she a dud mare? Mm. So that's about the level. They can turn around quickly, you know. Conversely, though, when you have a mare that can produce a quality horse, a stakes-winning horse, she can produce it forever. Mm. Now, this is where Damon and I probably disagree on something. Um, He tends to probably not look at, for example, a tenth foal out of a mare. I, I look I look at that tenth foal if it's a quality individual uh, and I say to myself, well hang on, this mare's produced a stakes winner and maybe three other city winners and maybe a stakes place horse. To me, she's a proven producer. Mm. I'll forgive her the fact that it's a tenth foal on the basis of her her production at stud. Where where I think Damon, you probably tend to diminish the prospects of a 10th, 11th, 12th fall? Well, probably. I, I think I agree with you. The statistics prove that um, the the best foals are probably in the first five or six. But what we can't get to the real bottom line is of how many mares have 10 foals. What percentage mm. of the mare population have 10 foals? So, you know... One thing, this yeah, business- but also sometimes they become self-fulfilling prophecies mm. because your mare's had five, six, seven foals, and now you tend to mate her to a lesser degree, yeah. and sure, that might produce a a lesser foal. So it does become self-fulfilling. I tend to appreciate very much mares and mare lines where mum, grandmother, and great grandmother, first, second, and third dams in a catalogue, say, um, have all produced high numbers of winners and some good quality within that. It's very difficult to use a crystal ball and assume just because a foal's a nice-looking foal or a yearling's a nice-looking yearling that it will outrun its pedigree, outrun its performance. I tend to think most of them run within the parameters of the antecedents that they've had. So to me, if a family... An individual mayor and then a family are consistent producers. They're the ones that are safe to breed from and subsequently race from. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Here's, oh. a, here's a question for both of you. Do we talk enough in racing media about the art of breeding? Or the conversations like we're just having now. Is, nobody's got the silver bullet. There's theories here, theories there. There's statistical shortfalls. There's things we know. There's things we don't know. To a... A lay person just listening to a conversation like this, I think it would sound it would be very interesting content. How do you breed a winner? How do you how do you create a winner? We seem to be very focused on the punt. And that does fund the industry. But well, should we be giving well, more airtime to Bre- this sort breeding's of thing? the ultimate punt, Sharky. True, yes, <laughs> but it's not, you know, going over and handing you fifty at the TAB or wherever else every week. That seems to be the dominant 
thing that we want to talk about from a media point of view. Do we need to talk about breeding more in general racing media? Well, it's very nice of you to, to have me in, uh, involved in this chat. Um, but that begs the question, really, who are owners? Um, and there are a very hidden aspect of the media uh, and of racing. I don't think race clubs respect breeders. Um, I don't think they really acknowledge or genuinely respect or even understand owners. Um, they'd like to, but I think the racing considers that the punter is the fuel that, that uh, funds the whole industry, a- and that's true. A- and the integrity, particularly in Victoria, uh, the integrity side of racing is fantastic. I mean, the, the stewards, uh, they do a wonderful job. Sometimes we complain they do too good a job, but... They're, they're fantastic. Uh, they keep racing on the up and up and they, they get rid of the, the, the bad apple that happens from time to time. But what happens really is that they then lose sight of who's paying to put on the show. And in my view, that's the owners of the racehorses. Um, there's no incentive for anybody other than their own uh, initiative and, and their own rewards. There's no, in, no rewards from the industry for paying to put on the show. I mean, the, at the cost of putting a horse to a race is, is quite ex, quite expensive. You do buy the yearling or, or produce it for, for a homebred. Um, you then pay breaking fees and, and preparation fees and training fees, and then you hope it gets to the races and, and competes well. But in the meantime, racing sits back and enjoys the result of your productivity because uh, for every race that might be, say, 15 horses in a field in in Victoria, um, and those those participants all hope to win a race one day. The reality is not all will, but many will win multiple races. So what, what happens is they enjoy the process, some enjoy the journey more than others, but racing doesn't really acknowledge them. Um, racing just sits back and takes their productivity but doesn't really genuinely acknowledge them and I think that's one of the journeys that a lot of people who have been in syndicates and other small or large um, uh, entries into racing feel that keenly that they're not truly valued and they should be. Well I think to just assist to that Breeders are very big owners and I don't think media and a lot of race clubs understand how many horses breeders own and race are involved with. So, And to go back to your original question, I do believe you guys in the media should be more aware of breeding. Whilst the punt and the betting is very important, so is the breeding aspect of it. And I think you guys, when I watch the different uh, media outlets... It's all about the punt and the glamour, but the breeding's very important. And some horses don't outrun their pedigrees and some run two pedigrees. So mm. I think an understanding of that would be much more appreciated. But it's not all that long ago. I finished in, at the age, probably 10 years ago now, which seems remarkable in itself. But That's when circulation dropped. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, well, yeah, it did, yeah. but there were changes. There was the, uh, you know, the mass redundancies across all sort of uh, newspaper outlets in Australia, everything else. But with that... Uh, editorial size shrunk for a number of sports and racing was one of them. There used to be a weekly breeding article in the age. Mm. The Australian had Monday a fantastic Monday Australian. breeding feature every week. Doesn't happen anymore. No, and that's that, an opportunity for that information but that that's was online. out there in the general public to be... It's gone now. That's online now. 
It's the on Monday line. Australian's gone because that's old news because it's now happening Saturday night. I'm reading it online on Twitter, on whatever, on Breednet, Racenet. So I, I think that's online. You have to go looking for it though. Whereas when it's in the newspaper, yeah. it was there and you could you would come across it in the daily. But who reads the newspaper? Who gets the well, newspaper? Exactly. But whether you yeah. read it physically or online, I think the point's made. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it's a good one. And it's part of what racing perhaps should be doing. Um, like who's responsible? Is it the breeder? Are the breeders responsible? Is racing responsible? Is the media responsible? I guess the media is simply going to produce what it thinks people will enjoy and read. And sometimes, though, you've got to understand the media also lead the debate. Mm. And it would be nice if the issues behind racing were more more pronounced. Mm. Indeed. I had a question for Robert. Just if we can, we switch. Is that okay, Shark? Fearless leader, <laughs> Robert. Do you think breeding winners and breeding commercially for the yearling sale market is the same thing or different? Well, as I said earlier, Damon, my rationale is to be breeding to improve the family. So I'm trying to produce winners, not necessarily produce sales horses. Um, I think, however, if you, if you restrict the, the question, say, to producing a sales horse, um, I, I don't think there's any rationale between producing a sales horse and producing a winner. Mm-hmm. That's my opinion. Um, I think if you set out to produce a winner, it may not be fashionable enough to make the best price it could at a yearling sale, but it might be more likely to win. The rationale is, for me, is to produce winners. Yes. And subsequently that reflects it in your commercial aspect, particularly mm. in the future, and the families. But but that's the key, I think, to have the integrity um, to produce winners. Well, at the end of the day, you have to breed winners. You can breed a lot of high-priced, high-profile yearlings that sell very well. But if they don't run, that, only, that cycle will only last for a you know, limited time because if you don't produce the winners, people will get sick of coming and buying off you because you're not producing enough winners. So you got uh, in a broodmare band and mating broodmares, you've got to balance that. Yeah, you and do. Um, it, it's, it's a tough, harsh business. It's seen so many players come and go. But the joy of today, back to your question, Sharky, of the health of the industry, there are so many new players coming in from outside of racing uh, into it and, and enjoying their foray. Um, it's a rewarding um, business, both in financial and, and social terms. Um, but if you, can, if you can produce a quality product in any industry, um, it's rarely shown up as much as the winning post in mm. our industry. Very you true. can't escape uh, the integrity of breeding a horse that'll run and win. That's true. Rob, if whoever's in charge of Racing Australia at the moment came and knocked on your door and said, Mr Crabtree, here's the keys to the industry, breeding and racing, you've got control for a week. Uh, (laughs) Whatever you'd like to change, you can change and we'll run with that ongoing. What immediately springs to mind for you as changes you think would benefit the industry, not only in the short term, but with a view to the future? One of the things that uh, is lacking is a uniformity between states. Uh, that manifests itself in carnival overlaps, for example, when, when, say, South Australia is 
enjoying its day in the sun and trying to promote its product. And then the last few days of that carnival are the first few days of the Queensland carnival. I mean, that, that's a nonsense. Um, the problem is if Racing Australia did come to me with those proverbial keys, the, the problem really is Racing Australia itself. Um, I guess the, the model to look at is the AFL. The AFL exists only because the old VFL ceded power to, to the AFL. They said, yep, we'll be the shareholders, but we will allow you to run the business. Now, in, in Australian racing, um, the states, the clubs and the states have not ceded that power to Racing Australia. Uh, and there, therein probably lies the biggest difficulty. We need an umbrella organisation that can have consistent rules. I mean, one of the rules, for example, in Victoria is you can't race a horse with um, hormones in it. And, and nobody wants knowingly to take an advantage. But, but a filly, for example, shouldn't uh, have her cycle being... Regulated, if you like, regulated by Regumate, for example, um, yet it can in New South Wales. So the Victorians say some. the rule is you can't race with Regumate in your system, um, but New South Wales you can. Well, that's a nonsense. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. How, how can you have things like that? So you have, have overlaps and, and difficulties between states on, on programming. Uh, you have different rules for racing between states and borders, those sort of things should go. And the only way they can go is a meaningful structure is put in and the states legitimately cede power to, to a racing Australia. Perhaps not the racing Australia that exists, mm. but the principle sound. I wonder what the likelihood of that is to happen. Mm. Well, what was that flying past? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> One last question for me, for Mr. Crabtree. What piece of advice would you give to a new person coming into the industry, whether it be a breeder or a racer? Or enjoy your time. Enjoy your time. Enjoy the enjoy the the delights of success because it's a tough, hard business. That genuinely, there are so many disappointments. But when you do hit the heights as a breeder or an owner or even just as a race goer and enjoy the wonders of a horse like Winx, for example, and you'll remember and tell your grandkids that, that you were there when Winx won oh, its, one of its wonderful races. Plate. Yeah, th those sort of things are, are just unique to our business. The highs are so high, uh, and unfortunately the lows are so often that just really enjoy the highs. Very good. That's good advice. Damon, Rob... We could have chatted all day, I think, on all matters racing and breeding. Thank you both very much for your time this afternoon. and Thanks for coming along and being guests on the shortlist. Thank you, Sharky. Thank thanks, you, Damon. Shark. Thank you, Robert. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of The Shortlist. And remember, if you'd like to talk bloodstock with an expert, make sure you visit bloodstockagents.com.au and get in touch with an FBAA member.